On this Christmas Eve, Philip Atolli and Teresa Cowie present an Insight Christmas special, taking a look back at some of the highlights and catching up with the newsmakers and contributors in this year's programs. This is Philippa and Teresa, and we've got together to look back on the year. And I've got here in front of me our trusty printout of our spreadsheet of our 48 programs that we've made this year. Lots of scribbles all over it, but we've brought you this year to the rodeo. We've asked whether mountain biking is the new golf. We've looked at building standards and mental health. Um, and lately, Cody Dieback as well. I know there's been some amazing things when we look back. Water quality, kids and online porn. But look, one of the issues that provoked strong emotion during the year was a debate over the possible legalisation of medical cannabis. Yes, and for this programme, I spoke with several patients and their families who, who felt that cannabis was helping with their severe pain or or nausea um, for their end of life care or for their chronic pain. Some people are really passionate about it, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they are. I mean, it really affects their lives so directly and for many of them, they're having to buy it on the black market. They're the sort of people who are usually law abiding and it was just amazing to hear their stories about life in the waiting room. One of the people who I spoke with was Tori Catherwood and her mother's dying of breast cancer and medical cannabis helps her mother with pain and, and nausea. But she told me about how using it was such a huge stress for their family because they're not used to breaking the law, basically. And so, you know, we get a knock on the door and if we don't know who it is, it, it does stress her out a lot. And it's stress that could be easily avoided if these patients were allowed to access it legally. Mm-hmm. And your dad's a lawyer, so is it a worry for him to have illegal activity in in his home? He didn't know, and it was something that she did without anybody else's knowledge because she was ill. And it that, to me, I think... So she had to keep it secret from your dad? Yeah, effectively, because he's a lawyer. Um, Yeah. And Tori Cathwood herself, she's a final year medical student, so she has sort of similar worries herself. Um, When I met with her back in April for the programme, she told me that she was really worried about what speaking out about medical cannabis might do to her future reputation as a doctor. But since appearing on Insight and and also making her own documentary about medicinal cannabis, and it's actually a, a documentary for educating doctors, she says it's actually been probably more helpful for her for her medical career. It's, it was a concern at first, but in um, hindsight, actually, I think that I've helped it more than ever. I want to go into research, and I come from a background of looking at the biochemistry of drug addiction. So, um, you know, something like medicinal cannabis is, is, you know, right down my alley. And I have been asked to go overseas to work with cannabis and cannabinoid physicians. Dr. David Beerman, who's an international cannabinoid physician in California, has asked me to go and study under him to learn how they're prescribing it as a, you know, a whole plant. And he's also lined me up to go and meet up with, you know, other doctors and his colleagues like surgeons and pediatricians and gynecologists just to understand how they're using it overseas. So I think that that's been really awesome. And I think if I hadn't have spoken out about it, this opportunity wouldn't have arose so I never intentionally hoped that that would happen I just wanted to help mum to get better access but it's definitely helped me. 
Tori says that things have actually improved a bit for her mother. She's been able to access the approved uh, cannabis-based pharmaceutical Sativex, but it does cost about $1,000 a month, and it isn't working as well for her pain and nausea as the raw products do. Well, look, that story was talked about again and again over the year, and another one that was surfaced in the media often was fresh water. So at the end of last summer, I went out and about and talked to people about the sort of issues that are affecting our fresh water. Summertime, people get out in the summer, don't they? Looking for somewhere to swim, (laughs) hopefully, somewhere fresh. Anyway, they were facing low water flow, excessive nutrients and much of the fresh water, algal blooms, which have already started this hot summer, urban contamination of local streams and rivers. In the middle of the year, the national-led government announced a plan to upgrade the acceptable standard from wadeable and set a target of 90% of lakes and rivers being swimmable by 2040. But some water ecologists were unconvinced by this move and they said the new standards actually shifted the goalposts by changing the quality of the water deemed swimmable. Jenny Webster-Brown is the director of the Waterways Centre for Fresh Water Management, and that's based in Canterbury and Lincoln Universities. And she came into our Christchurch-based studios to talk about the current state of New Zealand's fresh water, and I asked her if there was any sign of improvement at all. It's hard to identify any particular change from um, what's gone on in the past. I think there's been some very important policy changes over the last year that will impact on how we view waters um, this summer especially, and one of which, of course, was the the clean waters proposal from the government in February this year, where swimmability became a key consideration of um, to, to be put into the national policy statement. Now we have a, a, a more rigorous way of protecting waters for swimming and for assessing how swimmable they are. If we're going to have an unusually hot and dry summer, where is that going to leave the fresh water? In relatively poor shape. It's, it's always vulnerable to what the climate is. And obviously in years when you've got a higher rainfall, you've got much more water flushing through the system, you've got much greater dilution power of any contaminants going in. As soon as you get low flow, you start to see the conditions that really facilitate bacterial blooms and that kind of thing, algal blooms. It sets the system up to be a poor water quality year. And nothing has changed when it comes to the nutrients that have been going into our waterways, which have been identified as such an issue those are still going in or are finding their way through the system? I'd like to think that it's changing. Um, I wouldn't say it's changed markedly from where we were at this time last year. These things take a long period of time. Any measures that we put in place now, we won't see changes for possibly 10, 15, even 20 years down the track. And it requires a lot of action quickly, and we're still seeing action slowly at this stage. What do you think people's chances are of finding somewhere to clean that they will go for a swim? Do you think they're high this summer? I think they're as high as they usually are. Um, Which is not very high. (laughs) Well, in Gendabri, we've seen a slight improvement since last year in the number of sites that would be considered safe for swimming, which is encouraging. And the Um, rest of the country? What have you been um, hearing about that? um, It varies across the country, obviously, because water availability and water quality problems do vary across the country. But my advice would be to go to the regional council site or wherever else and and check it out before you go swimming. So your chances of finding somewhere for swim should be relatively high. It just pays to do a little bit of research before you go. (laughs) Thank you for that advice. And fingers crossed that we do find somewhere that people can get in the water. But thank you very much for your time. And Jenny, have a great summer. Thank you, you too.
And from the health of our rivers to the health of our people. Uh, this year, one of the bigger issues has been mental health. That was huge during the election campaign, of course. And another one was the cost of seeing our GP. In March, our health correspondent Karen Brown investigated widespread fears over the affordability of a trip to the family doctor. And at the time, reports estimated that half a million people couldn't afford a trip to the doctor. Uh, this program provoked a lot of comment and suggestions for change, especially from among the GP community. Yes, it certainly can mount up when you've got a whole host of children all sick, especially with winter illnesses. And that half million people not being able to afford a trip to the doctor was significant. There have been some announcements about doctor's visits. So I asked Karen if the situation had changed in any significant way. Basically, that was a number of, of people who said that cost was a factor that had prevented them from going to see the GP in the past year. And so I think we're primarily talking about uh, people on low incomes. But the other situation that that insight talked about, really, which still exists, is the problem about GP fees being quite high. They, they haven't come down. And there is inequity when you can, in some areas, go to a GP, which is part of this very low-cost access funded scheme. So you'll get a, a GP fee that might be $18. But in another area, you could be a poor person. But because you're in an area which uh, doesn't have a very low-cost access funded practice, you'll pay much, much higher fees I than the 40s, 50s dollars. I think you had GPs saying, you know, we've got the cheap fees, but we've got millionaires coming that's right, and that still exists, and in some places, and I'm thinking Whangarei, you have the added problem under that scheme that, um, that practices that didn't get into that scheme when they could, and they can't get into it now, are competing um, face-to-face in the same street with practices that are funded, and they're losing patients to, to those other practices. So it's quite a struggle for some GPs, it's, isn't it? It is a struggle, especially in Whangarei. And you heard from patients who talked about their difficulties in being able to, to go and to afford and to get reassessed, for example, for benefits. But you also spoke to quite a few GPs who talked about the real challenges of trying to make sure they could get their patients to come but run a modern-day practice. That's right. I mean, GPs are also facing a whole lot of extra costs themselves. And I know a lot of the public think can't quite relate to the fact that, that some GPs are finding the finances difficult, but really there is a huge, I think I realised that through doing the insight, there's uh, urgent need in the general practice community for a reassessment of all of the fees. So they talk about capitation. Now, the new government promised, I think in its first 100 days, to review, begin reviewing, the whole primary health funding. And that is what the general practice community really urgently wants to see. I mean, there are other things that have been um, promised, Philippa, uh, by the new government. Um, among them, GP subsidies will be increased to cut fees by, by $10 a visit. The longer-term funding system will be reviewed to ensure doctor's visits remain affordable into the future. Free doctor's visits will be extended by an extra year to cover not only those under 13 but under 14 with teen health checks for all Year 9 students and there'll be a free annual health check for seniors including an eye check as part of the new Super Gold Card. Now what the doctors want is they urgently want is the review of the capitation and the review of funding.
Well, those are the sorts of important issues that Inside has delved into quite a great deal to try and give our audience more in-depth understanding of the issues. But we also, when we look at programmes, try to explore the challenges that others face. Theresa, why did you start to investigate how parents made decisions when raising a transgender child? Yeah, I suppose uh, my starting point was that I saw this uh, notice from the Mothers Network and they were asking um, people if they'd like to join a mother's support group for uh, parents of transgender children and in the Wellington region specifically as well. And I thought, are there even enough children or enough parents to to form a group? I wanted to look at what's it like um, from the parenting point of view to parent a child in this situation. There's always lots of challenges that come along with parenting, but this looked like a looked like a pretty pretty tricky one to deal with. Um, so Mother's Network put me in touch with Kate, um, and Kate told me about the day her then son decided to head off to primary school as her trans daughter. It wasn't until she was actually eight that she specifically said, I'm a girl on the inside, I'm not a boy, please stop calling me a boy. And that was her words at the breakfast table before school one morning. (laughs) So that was a little bit of a shock. I think we were like, oh, this is more than what we initially thought it was. But of course, as soon as she told me, being typical kid reaction is like, great, I've told you now, so I'm going to go get changed to some of my sister's clothes and let's go to school. And as a parent, you're thinking, um... Put the brake on for a second. You know, you panic. You think, oh, no, 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 I've got to talk to the principal. I've got to talk to the teachers. I've got to protect you. You can't go out of the house like that. And Kate said to me one of the biggest struggles as a parent was the idea that some people assume that there's something wrong with your parenting. I suppose we all feel that from time to time about anything around what we're doing. Um, Or that you've pushed your child into this, which she just, she couldn't fathom. Do you really think that I woke up one morning and thought, you know what would make my life so much easier? Today I'll make my little boy a girl. You know, like it's, of all the things to do as a parent, that is the most difficult thing. It's not going to be easy for my child, you know. And I think that's the biggest thing that people don't understand. We probably look like on the outside that we're, you know, we're 100% on board. We did go through months of really questioning ourselves as parents, grieving for that little boy that we'd lost, grieving for the fu- the hard, hard future that we know our child's going to have to walk now. You know, every stage of her life is going to be a challenge and difficult. And it was it was actually really interesting when I um, went back recently to see Kate um, almost a year on. Um, when when I first talked to her, she was saying about how she'd sometimes shake when she had um, you know new parents who she might have to tell. She might be setting up a play date, or someone might be taking her child off to swimming, and she'd be really worried about having to sort of come out again and and see what the situation would be. But now she said, you know, a couple of years on, they're a lot more confident. They often just forget about it as an issue so they're really sort of moving on and it's they call it a a new normal so she said having the program itself go out this year has really helped her to sort of strike up conversations with friends and families about what they've been going through as well it was a good way to get them to listen and understand what we've been through for the last year so that was really cool And I know through the program that more parents um, and families that are going through a similar situation reached out via um, the portal page on Facebook, which is a secret group for parents with gender diverse children. So I feel like it created more awareness and it allowed people to have a friendly discussion, I think, about our children. So it was really good. Yeah. 
I did find actually with the, the email feedback that we got back, it was a friendly discussion. I was quite surprised being the cynical journalist that I am. I thought there'd be a lot of negative feedback. It's a contentious issue. But we had a lot of people write in and say uh, particularly that they'd learned a lot. And one wrote to me saying, amazing is it not that it's taken me all of my 72 years to gain an entry-level understanding of transgenderism. And they thanked us because they'd learnt so much. So that was really lovely. Yeah, I agree. And we always get lots of feedback when we cover anything to do with education. It's right in there with parenting as well, I suppose. And with the elections looming, our education correspondent John Gerritsen took the opportunity to take a look back at the education system after three terms of a national-led government. Parents and teachers alike are pretty passionate about what's going on in the New Zealand schools, aren't they? This is certainly one area where there's already been quite a bit of change, although a lot of it won't come into force until next year. We've had national standards have gone out the window anyway. But in his insight, the issues that featured for John were national standards, charter schools, NCEA passes at level two, but a decline in performance in the international testing. Well, the thing that really struck me actually was the lack of enthusiasm for national standards. I know many teachers and principals, in fact, arguably most, were not happy with the introduction of the standards. They felt they were sort of foisted on the sector and there wasn't really any consultation to figure out how they'd work. And they really resented having to send in all these results and have one school compared to another. But I thought after nine years or eight years of whatever it was in the end, schools might have sort of come to terms with it, been a bit happier. And that really wasn't the case. You know, the people I talked to were still really unhappy with them, um, didn't think that they added any value. Um, apart from there was one principal I talked to who said, OK, that gave us a benchmark that for us as a low decile school, we could say, OK, let's aim for this. This is what we're expected to do. She said that was quite useful, but really that was it. Everyone else um, is be quite happy to see them go, so they'll be very happy that that's the stance of the new government. We know that some NCA levels have gone up. Can that be seen to looking back at national standards and saying look we we made sure people came up to certain points at certain times and picked up those that were falling over. That's right well I did ask principals surely you're better at teaching maths and reading now and and they said no all we're doing is or many schools are doing is just getting kids to the benchmark and look and I have talked to principals I talked to one principal who took over a school uh, in the Hawke's Bay and and, um, it was admittedly a failing school that's why he was brought in he said the national standards results were fiction. They were way worse. So, And I have also talked to teachers, and we've done a program for Insight a few years ago, where people talked about the faking of national standards results, either administering a test a couple of times in a row to get better results from the kids, the same test. Um, so you know, that's just un- terrible. That's terrible practice um, to people basically inflating their estimation of how children are achieving. So although national standards results kind of crept up a little bit and there were arguments around the the validity of comparisons between one school and another. There's also this sort of fictional results going on. And then if you look at NCEA results, the pass rates have gone up, you know, and people are happy about that. They do give the previous government some credit for that, saying, look, we had this 85% target, so we really pushed towards it. But having said that, they're not saying that kids are better at, say, reading, writing and maths when they're 16 or 17. What's happening is schools are just better at finding the pathways the kids are good at, what will actually get them across. So children aren't getting all the same NCA qualification, they're getting different. And that's appropriate. Secondary teachers say, look, that's that's fine. At least these kids are getting recognition for what they can do. But and is that... students feel good about that and their parents exactly, do as well. Exactly. But is achievement going up? Well, you know, 
That's Does, debatable. Is that where we fall down then when it comes to international tests, which are very prescribed as to what they do test? They don't test for what suits a child. They say, we're testing in these things, normally the old academic subjects, and that's where we seem to be slipping. Yeah, that's right. Um, during the period that National was in power, the uh, results in the PISA test, so that's the Programme for International Student uh, Achievement, or is it assessment? Sorry. Um, Education, full I, of acronyms. Uh, too, many acronyms, too many A's there. Anyway, uh, that, that's a test of 15-year-olds, uh, reading, maths and science, and those results have gone down and under national reached the lowest point we've had. So completely the opposite to what we're expecting uh, with the NCA results going up. Quite a shock, very embarrassing. Um, no one's really able to come up with a decent excuse as to why, except perhaps there's a growing percentage of Māori and Pacific Islanders in the secondary schools and the population in general that has uh, traditionally been our weakest performing group. Uh, no one's really sure what's going on, although it is has has been mirrored in other Western countries, other English-speaking nations, so maybe there's something in common there. You just mentioned Māori and Pacifica, a section of the school population which is traditionally you know, underperformed. What are the ideas that it might be filtering in next year about what can be done to make sure all students, doesn't matter what their, their ethnic background is, actually all achieve all that they can? Yeah, well, one of the things that um, teachers and principals are saying to me is that schools have got better in the last few years at tailoring what they teach to the individual students. So they are looking at who's in front of them, and that includes being culturally responsive. And I'm told time and again that is going to help improve results, just simply looking at the children, and not just as a class, but individually, and figuring out why they're ahead, why they're behind, what they need help with, and so forth. Good teachers should be doing that. Most of them already are. But look, I've also talked to principals who said we cannot solve all the problems of poverty. We need better health care, better homes, uh, better incomes for low-income people. That will help improve education as well. And it's not just teachers wanting better housing to improve educational outcomes. Phil Pennington, our reporter, has also been looking at buildings more widely this year. He's been uncovering problems to do with building safety and um, steel quality, looking at the earthquakes and the security of fittings inside buildings as well. He's also uncovered some cases where a lack of inspection or rigorous testing might also be going on, and I wonder whether this had sparked a tightening up on checks and whether there's a greater adherence to standards. Well, I hope people are taking these things seriously. I'm sure they are. It's a really good time to be asking these questions because of the pressures that we ta- I talked about in the Inside in August. At the end of the year, this is when those pressures really just crank up enormously before Christmas. Every man and his dog, every woman and their dog are trying to get on board to get their project uh, finished, to get it consented, if it's on the uh, you know underway already, to get it push it through before there's the, the break over the Christmas period. And those pressures that we've uh, been following all year, they're just cranking up more and more across all of the sectors, yeah. What sort of things are people focusing on most? Materials, design, regulation? Across so many areas, they're aware that there are uh, weaknesses and that there are things that need to change and they're trying to tackle them. I think the priority setting is the thing that is really at issue and it, as things pop up of course then that becomes a priority so the CTV decision which has dismayed uh, so many of the families uh, who's, uh, people in their families who died, that has pointed to accountability and whether accountability is, is good enough. Um, the Engineering New Zealand, which is the new name of IPENS, they say that things have changed markedly since then and they have tightened up their procedures considerably. Um, I don't think the public is convinced about that um, and uh, there's a lot of scepticism about the, the lack of a prosecution. Um, just to bring it back to the capacity, what we've always been on reporting these things is trying to balance 
the huge demands that there are with how do you build things more safely. Um, in terms of where that is getting to with a new government, um, it's probably only gotten more complicated. Uh, the new government has uh, the 100,000 uh, homes, new affordable homes that they want built in 10 years under the Kiwi Bill. So even scheme. more pressure on the whole yeah, sector. Yeah, more, more pressure. Um, they've got the immigration uh, clamped down, you know, uh, is it uh, 20,000, 30,000 fewer and migrants? And that could flow further yeah. into the skilled workforce? Well, 1,500 visas, Kiwi Build visas, that's three years on your visa, but um, Construction industry is really worried that they're just not going to have the people to do the, the, the work. And whenever I talk to builders, this is what they're talking about, that they don't have the, the people or they don't have the skilled people to do the work. And what about that self-regulation and perhaps, you know, a rowing back on the, the checks and scrutiny of what work's been going on? Is there a, a move to try and get more inspectors in place, be it at the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment or at local authorities? In terms of the inspectors and uh, the power that they have and the numbers that they have, again, huge pressure. And you can imagine when, uh, basically, if you're in um, a regulatory role um, and you want to leave that job, there's a lot of uh, options now because uh, the rest of the industry is, is so short. So I think the councils and MB are finding that there's huge pressure on that. You know, latest OIA figures just reported on show that the nationwide regulator with an MB, it's um, got 40% of its positions are vacant. Um, yes, it's restructuring and it's expanding and that's part of it, but where are they going to find the people? And they've lost uh, at least eight senior people. It's determinations unit, which is the one that, that knuckles down with the really hard decisions about which impinge on building safety, what should they allow build, built and what not. That's um, got half of it is not, not filled its positions, I think. And, uh, of course, one of the other big stories when it came to buildings was, of course, the Grenville Tower fire in London and the absolutely horror at the implications of people choosing inappropriate materials. Yeah, I think Grenfell has shown up that we are a street ahead of the Australians. The Australians, they've done, they have responded really, really rapidly, and they've done surveys across Victoria and New South Wales. These are showing you know, more than a thousand buildings with the flammable type of aluminium cladding. Um, in New Zealand, it does not seem that we have that sort of problem. It does testify, I think, to the fact that our fire rigs with sprinkler buildings have been pretty good, and fire engineers have been doing a good job. But they're in, in conflict with the ministry now. They've just had a stoush because the ministry brought in a rule which they thought was just clar- well, they said it was just clarifying things, but the industry says it had a, is having a big impact and a cost flow through on some big projects, and that shows you that. What that speaks to is there's a lack of trust from the industry in the regulator, in the ministry, and a lot of people in the industry think that the councils are simply not in a position to effectively police this. They don't, you know, Auckland City Council inspectors spending 40 minutes per inspection. It's just not going to cut the mustard. But on the plus side, we know that, for instance, in Auckland, the council has been a lot stricter about uh, steel and the standards there. I was at a uh, the Structural Engineers Society conference uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and people there were talking about how that has really, really tightened up. And the responsible companies are, are understanding that with steel anyway, you've really got to make all those checks that we've been talking about and reporting on for a couple of years. And that's all from the Insight team for 2017. I'm Teresa Cowie. And I'm Philippa Tolley. And we're taking a slightly longer break in the new year. And we'll be back at the end of February with a whole host of new investigations and more in-depth journalism on air and online. And, of course, you can head to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Insight. Have a listen to the programmes we've spoken about today and a whole heap more. And until then, thanks to all the operators who have helped us weave together our programmes throughout the year. 
Have a fabulous Christmas. Yours might be a white one, Teresa. (laughs) I certainly hope so. I'm going to England for three weeks, so I think, you know, giving up three weeks of this glorious summer, I expect a proper, in inverted commas, white Christmas. Well, wherever your holidays might be, I hope they're great ones. Many thanks for listening, and we look forward to you all joining us again next year.